0: Kid, it's okay. I've been there. We've all been there. Now put away your copy close to the edge. Let's get down to business.
1: Sugand. All day in my daddy's garage, driving all night chasing some mirage. But now I'm going to take a break from all that and talk with my good friend Chris Scanlon. We're going to sling the bull about Bruce Springsteen and one album of his in particular that Chris saw in a new light after a life changing trip to South Africa. Chris is a great singer songwriter in his own right, and he is also a bona fide Springsteen scholar, having presented the piece you're going to hear later at an international symposium dedicated to The Boss. Chris, welcome.
0: Thanks, James. That was a lovely
1: introduction. So, I, I basically know nothing about Springsteen. Why is he called the boss?
0: He knows what he wants when it comes to the music and when he's working with the band. That nickname kind of came out of that. He adopted it, but he hated it for a long time, you know, being the, the, the proletariat man that he is. But uh, it, it just he's just very driven and, and is very clear about
1: his ideas. He is the, uh, the bard of the working man, but his nickname is antithetical to that.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So the, the piece that you wrote is about a trip to South Africa in college, but I wanted to start a little bit earlier than that. You were decidedly not a Springsteen fan growing up, right?
0: No, I was not. I mean, I certainly heard Born to Run on the Radio or Badlands, but... I didn't really connect it all to this local guy who who did pretty good for
1: himself so you you were originally from new jersey
0: yes i grew up in uh, Mattawan, new jersey which uh is 15 minutes from freehold where where bruce grew up
1: and one of the lines in your piece is with distance from home i could hear him so after after getting out of madowan is when you began to appreciate him
0: I appreciated him while while I was still living in New Jersey. Uh, the Tunnel of Love album came out, which was his first, like, relationship album. He wasn't trying to make Flannery O'Connor overtures or trying to be John Steinbeck or John Updike. He was just kind of, like, sorting out the end of his marriage. And that album I, I, I connected to, and that sort of made me think, oh, maybe this guy's not a, the meathead that you see in the video of Dancing in the Dark. I hate that video. Anyway. um, (laughs) uh, And so I kind of opened up to to him at that point. And then when I moved up to Massachusetts that first year, I finally was just like, all right, I guess I should listen to Born to Run all the way through besides the the single. And uh, I taped it from a friend. And I think it was spring break. And I was going down to see my mom and my friends. And Jungle Land came on as I was literally crossing the border into New Jersey from New York in my car, Clarence Clemens' epic sax solo came on. It's a really long, beautiful, poetic solo. It's just epic. And uh, by the end, I was in tears. I was just like, oh, wow, I got it. I get it now. He's a Jersey boy and so am I. And as much as I tried to avoid admitting I was a Jersey boy. I totally was.
1: Before you were listening to Bruce, you were listening to ELP. Yes, all that stuff. Did did you renounce them when you became a Springsteen fan?
0: Not necessarily. There was a point in the 90s where my prog rock appreciation started to fade, and I kind of found some of that music a little too mechanical. The virtuoso pieces felt unnecessary. I started to appreciate a three or four minute song versus a 20 minute song. It's amazing what you can get done in three minutes sometimes. You can actually tell a really good story.
1: At, at this point in my life, I feel like I've kind of like reintegrated everything that I, that I previously renounced. Does that, does that hold true for you?
0: I, I've made peace with a lot of that music. Like, I can't say I listen to Emerson and Palmer that much, but when I do, I'm always happy to hear it. And there are some pieces that, yes, have done that are just amazing. You know, the musicianship uh, where they're able actually to take these five virtuosos and weave them together in a way that, like, makes the song work better as opposed to, like, makes the song more complicated for no reason other to make it complicated. I I can't say that there's any bands that I used to like that I've forsaken. I guess a weird way to say it is I've made peace with them.
1: I like that. I like that. I remember you told me a story once, and this might have been from when you were living in California. About uh, there was there was going to be a big rumble between fans of of two different bands.
0: I lived in Orange County, California. It was it was pretty middle class for the most part. People were doing okay, but for some reason, the kids in my middle school there was a certain level of dissatisfaction and almost gang mentality. This was the year that the Stray Cats were very popular. You had a bunch of folks dressing up as rockabillies. You know, the greased hair, the old school shirts, the, the dress to the nine pants and shoes. And, and this um, was
1: middle school? This was in middle school, 1982. Wow. So 14-year-olds so dressing up as greasers.
0: Yeah. And then you had the rockers, like the, the dudes who were in the Judas Priest and Dio and Ozzy Osbourne. They were dressed in black and long hair and burnouts and this and that. There was all this conflict between them. You know, the, the rockabilly kids were probably the more well-to-do kids, let's be honest, given the fact that they were able to dress the way they did. And so there was this ongoing tension and tension. And finally, the word on the street was like, there's going to be a rubble behind, I think, maybe like the Kmart or something. Somebody tipped off the police right when apparently the, 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 the rockabilly kids were going to be back down into a corner. The next day at school, not one single kid was dressed as a rockabilly. They were just wearing boring, preppy clothes. It was around that time that I first heard Quadrophenia, which ironically, in part, was based on conflict between mods and rockers in 1964, London area, Brighton. Mm -hmm. Since that time, I've just always become fascinated about identity politics. What is it about an identity that you're so invested in that you're willing to kick someone's head in for it. During that time, I was very much on the outside of both
1: of those groups. You avoided the the melee because you were at football practice. So you, you wouldn't have been on either side of that fight.
0: I, I, I might have gone down to see what was going on if I didn't have practice, but I was pretty pretty dedicated to the football team, man.
1: Well, you know, being a jock has its, has its benefits <laughs> sometimes.
0: That's another area I never really fit, fit in. <laughs>
1: All right. Let's, let's go to South Africa. You talk in your piece about, uh, the, the one guy that's given you a hard time, uh, not interested in anything you had to say. He's, he's saying that he told us that he was glad to have been raised during apartheid, which is a pretty striking statement.
0: It is. I think for a lot of South Africans who were living during that time, either exiled or in the underground or, or on the, on the streets, uh, a lot of those victories were hard fought, so much sacrifice and loss. And so when he said stuff like we were better off during apartheid, they didn't understand what the hell he was talking about. But I kind of did. And I think what he meant was like, when your world's falling apart, and your life's on the line, like every moment's precious, you know, you value the things that you have more than you would normally. He felt like the more money, the more material goods, the more ways in which those things bring isolation into our lives and, and, and separate us. He didn't think that was necessarily a good thing. I don't think he was saying, I wanted to go back to apartheid, but I think he was saying like, we're gonna lose those connections and that closeness. I really connected with that, considering that when I was there, I had to kind of let go of a lot of the superficial crap that kind of filled my day-to-day life as an American in Western Massachusetts college town.
1: Now, in in your piece, you were linking the the experience that um, that your hosts had under apartheid to kind of the hard scrabble existence described in Badlands and Promised Land. It helped you appreciate Bruce, but it, how how great a comparison is there to is there to draw there?
0: I found that you could take the lyrics from those songs and place them in New Jersey or Arizona or South Africa the lines, uh, old man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, king ain't satisfied, Toulouse rules everything, I want to go out tonight, find out what I've got. It means the same thing in South Africa, where you've lived under this this oppressive regime, and you finally got out of apartheid, but the whites still have most of the economic power. With the song Promised Land, I just, you know, when Bruce says, and I believe in the Promised Land, It's kind of a powerful thing to be able to say that after the three verses of crap that he had to deal with, there were just so many people I met that were so invested in this new country and in this new life. It was just very powerful and inspiring. And, you know, when I hear, and I believe from the promised land, it just meant more walking around people who were legally not people up until
1: six years earlier.
0: The idea of The Promised Land probably kept a lot of those guys alive, you know? Those those two songs are, are, are perfect for that context.
1: I want to segue for a minute over to not a Springsteen song, but a Chris Scanlon song. You wrote Songhezi about your time in South Africa. Tell me a little bit about the story behind that.
0: Songhezi is a real person. He had lived in exile, had avoided being captured on multiple occasions. The main part of that song for me was just the friendship we had. We we just obviously came from such different backgrounds and he kind of took me under his wing and my time there would have been totally different if he hadn't done that. We had a strange closeness that I can't quite explain. It's just the kind of friendship that, that comes about when you throw two unlikely people into the same context or the same place who wouldn't normally get together. Something incredible happens sometimes when you do that. He's definitely one of the closest friends I've ever had. And sadly, I've tried to track him down over the years, and I I have been unable to to find him.
1: There's a line in the song "Songhaizi." I hear the stomping of the toy toy, which. So I understand is a is a dance that originated in in Zimbabwe but was brought back to South Africa by a lot of exiles and that became a mass resistance technique. Can you describe the dance for me?
0: It's sort of like like very big movements where you sort of move to one side and then you move to the other side. And then the the songs and the singing, and the chanting was just incredible. But it was just really kind of a stomping. <laughs> 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 And everybody was sort of like in rhythm with each other. I never saw it during the apartheid years where life and death was on the line. But I did see it when the school hiked up tuition. The student government voted to have the, the students strike. When you go to school with a bunch of people who are politically active and mobilized like they've been for the past 20 years, you'd think that something like the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Harbor just happened, like the, the intensity the way they protested over materials fees for tuition was like intense. Uh, And, you know, I guess once you're part of that culture, you you just, you know, it's in you.
1: During apartheid, this is how the people with no power resisted the people with power. They had masses of people confronting tanks doing this dance. As as we record this, there are protests around the United States and around the world responding to the deaths of, of so many people of color at the hands of police. These protests are, for the most part, nonviolent, and they're being met with militarized police forces. The parallels are, are pretty striking.
0: Yeah, and I never thought I'd see that here, but they, they look shockingly familiar.
1: Did you play Bruce for any of your friends in South Africa? Did, had any of them heard of him before you got there?
0: Not really. Most people didn't didn't know who he was. I remember there was one night... Uh, I lived in a, a small dorm and there was this common room. No one would go in there. And so like on Friday nights, I'd grab my guitar and I'd, I'd play. It had great acoustics. And there was this one night I was playing a lot of darkness and people would just sort of walk by the door and be like, what's what's the white guy doing?
1: Getting back to your essay, you, you open up with uh, you're, you're trying to defend the honor of darkness on the edge of town in, in a Facebook argument. I have a couple questions about this, but, but first of all, where does, the, where does the impulse to defend a piece of music or, or a favorite album, where does that come from?
0: I think in that particular instance, it was a person who I respected musically, a fellow songwriter. They had just turned me on around that time to Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground, which I had peripherally appreciated. Because the songwriter had sort of converted me to their favorite when they disparaged my favorite, it, my attempt was to sort of like, no, 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 you got to see it from this angle and this angle and this angle. and But it quickly turned or devolved into a, 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 a one of those Facebook arguments that are just totally stupid. And sometimes it's just dumb to argue about art because it's so subjective. My way of processing that was writing the essay. I don't know if he ever ended up reading it, but I thank him for the inspiration.
1: I'm glad you brought up Lou Reed. In the Facebook discussion, he he holds up Candy's Room as the only great song on Darkness on the Edge of Town. What struck me listening to it the very first time was, boy, the beginning of this one, he's doing the spoken word. He really sounds like Lou Reed. In Candy's room, there are pictures of heroes on the wall. They're taking her children away. This is kind of my theory why uh, the the individual that we're talking about is drawn to this song. There's, there's that similarity. There's also a Velvet Underground song called Candy Says. That's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, Candy in Bruce Springsteen's song is, to coin a phrase, she's kind of inviting the narrator to take a walk on the wild side, it seems like. Candy came from out on the island.
0: Yes. <laughs> totally. It's not a cut and dry romantic situation. It's very much like a Lou Reed scenario. Uh, I've never drawn that parallel before. You're totally right.
1: Your essay in, in, in a lot of ways is a response to this, but if, if you were just firing back in a quick Facebook comment, how, how would you have defended darkness on the edge of town?
0: Forget about the guy who's drag racing his car forget about the guy who works in his dad's garage forget about the guy who's saying to his girlfriend i'll prove it all night because it's not about drag racing it's not about being a grease monkey and it's not about keeping it up for your girlfriend all night prove it all night is about i will prove to you that i love you and i'll do what it takes to give us the life that we want the promised land is about like breaking the the mold that other people, particularly family, have have made for you. So think of that when you listen to that song. When you listen to Racing in the Streets, it's not about drag racing. It's about figuring out who you are and having the guts to be that person. As fellow songwriters, we, we both appreciate that that's hard to do. When we put our music out there, we stand on the stage, it's exactly what we're doing, and it's hard as hell, and it's scary, and sometimes it's hard to get out the door to do it, but we have to. The character who drag races, he knows it's a dead end. He's never going to make a lot of money off of it. It's a good chance he could get really hurt doing it, but he has to because it's his thing. My colleague, songwriter, and I are never going to get rich off of our little piece of the pie in in the songwriting world. We're going to be constantly frustrated by people not understanding our music or we're not getting enough reviews or not getting enough sales. But that's not the point. We got to just do it because if we don't we just start to disappear that's who we are
1: my disposition as a as a music listener is i am i'm not a lyrics guy what always strikes me first is is the music of the thing and what really strikes me about racing in the street is you look at the title and you have an expectation of a, of a tempo somewhere around like 180 uh, and i don't yeah. know what the actual tempo is but it's very slow very sad very melancholy so that is just kind of remarkable on its face
0: when i first saw the title on the album i mean i just immediately thought this is just a play on dancing in the streets it's going to be this upbeat like but it's like the saddest song you've ever heard you know
1: so I, I actually went back and and found this Facebook thread, and another uh, singer songwriter who we both know and admire injected some some irreverent commentary into this uh, as well. And he he brought up "I've Returned" by the band Squeeze. That song had a a very similar uh, denouement, I guess, as uh, as Promised Land. And I think what he's referring to, so the chorus of Promised Land is uh, what the what the band is doing is. Dun, 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 which is a return from the from the fifth to the root, dominant to the tonic chord. That very same rhythm, very same uh, interval progression is is there in factory as well. The work, the work. That rhythm, at least, shows up at the end of I've, of I've returned. It's a common rhythmic conceit, but that, that's just one example that I would cite as far as what I listen for in music and what I, what really turns me on about albums is, is musical ideas, and mm-hmm. uh, that's not so much what you necessarily go to Bruce Springsteen for.
0: I definitely have some issues with the, the arrangements of the songs. They seem very straightforward FM rock tunes as opposed to a song like Jungleland that like, has four or five different movements. You know, Badlands is really kind of like four chords. I just didn't like it at first, and I totally understand why you think it bleeds it, it into one, and I think I experienced that way. I experienced the album that way for a long time. Later on, I guess I just really appreciated the simpleness of it. In the larger picture, when you look at the three albums that came before, very... Intense arranged songs, epic. On darkness, the the music matches the characters. It's it's tight, compacted. There's not a lot of layers. It's all very simple, primal music and and primal issues. I think when I when I started to really understand the the narrative behind it, the music made more sense.
1: Well, you've you've known me for a long time, and you know that I've always been kind of lukewarm on Bruce. And one day, finally, you said you should listen to. The Wild, The Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle, and and sure enough, I loved it. You 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 figured me out in that respect. Uh, for for a general listener anywhere in the world, uh, would would you recommend Darkness? Would you rec- what album would you introduce someone to Bruce Springsteen with?
0: I would say The Wonder Run, maybe, because it has a little bit of everything. It has the catchy pop songs, but it also has like really orchestrated expansive tunes and it just has some of his best lyrics i mean thunder road and born to run are just total classics it's a town full of losers and we're pulling out of here to win how the hell do you beat that you can't
1: just to tie the bow on on your essay uh tell me about this conference that you that you presented it at this was bruce springsteen's darkness on the edge of town an international symposium and it was at the bruce springsteen archives at Monmouth University, 2018.
0: You know, as a Bruce fan, I was always very interested, but did I want to like spend a weekend down back on the shore and invest the money? Um, But I knew at some point I was going to get down there. And it was always really heavy stuff, religious scholars, economic scholars, history scholars, philosophy scholars, all coming together and discussing Bruce's work and what it means in the larger context. So I I definitely felt like a fish out of water on that one. At the same time, it was really wonderful. It was going on when Bruce on Broadway was happening. I presented that afternoon, went into the city, saw Bruce perform that show, and then came back on Saturday and Sunday for the rest of the conference. made me wonder if I I missed my calling, like if I just really kind of stuck it out and tried to make a life for myself in academia.
1: But, you know, I guess I'm doing okay. Professor Scanlon, thank you very much.
0: Professor Scanlon, (laughs) God help my students.
1: Got an advanced degree in bossology.
0: (laughs) Earned in Madawan University. (laughs) Six-year degree. Darkness on the Edge of Cape Town. Bruce, South Africa, New Jersey, and back again. Back in 2011, a friend posted something on Facebook that was hard to swallow. He said after listening to Darkness on the Edge of Town by Bruce Springsteen for the first time in years that Candy's Room is still its only great track. Since Darkness is one of my favorite albums of all time, I foolishly responded, saying that I had to fight him on that. His response was, convince me why I should dust off my vinyl copy for another listen. Hours later, I wish I hadn't responded at all. I've come to despise debate about the merits of music, art, etc. It's pointless. Still, I felt like I had to say something. A lot has been said about Darkest on the Edge of Town over the years by rock critics, culture hounds, and even apparently academics. I can only say what I feel about an album that's been an important reference point for me as an artist and as a person. When I listen to that 1978 release, I meditate on my dreams, the cost of straying from them, and the very real circumstances that make them so hard to achieve. Listening reminds me of the family bonds that can either build me up or tear me to pieces, and the pull of my darker sides. I hear Springsteen tell a story that reflects the impossible marriage of hope and despair that is the American dream and the cost of believing in it. Darkness is a pivotal piece of art for me that, strange enough, I didn't fully appreciate until I lived in South Africa. Many miles and years removed, for my New Jersey upbringing. Okay, I'll admit that last paragraph looks and sounds like I cut and pasted from the countless articles and interviews released in the fall of 2010 to promote the 30th anniversary darkness box set Uber package. In the wake of that media blitz, it's hard to justify writing this blog, which even for me, the biggest Springsteen fan in Western Massachusetts was overkill. At times it seems like a carefully crafted PR move to solidify Bruce's legacy. That said, I believe every word of it. I also wouldn't mind having his management team. Having grown up in New Jersey, you'd think I was a boss fan from the beginning. Not so. My first true musical awakenings were in high school and ran parallel to the reign of born in the USA over the airways and pop culture in general. In the summer of 1984, there was no escaping that album while living in the heart of Bruce country. Not only did Bruce and I have the same history teacher in high school, but he recorded his classic album, Nebraska, in the house right next to my drummer's house. I hated all of it. It With his bandana, ripped flannel, shirt, dopey grin, and cheesy videos, the verdict was in. Bruce was a meathead, as stale and uncreative as the kids at school who wore his t-shirts. He couldn't touch the heady music I was trying, and failing, to emulate at the time. The Who, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Yes, King Crimson and the like. That was real music, let me tell you, with lots of notes and ridiculous time signatures. Like the narrator in Border Run, I eventually ran out of my dead end suburb, desperate and with no plan for what came next. I landed in a New England college town full of self importance and left wing political anger, thanks, Ronald Reagan, trying desperately to forget where I came from. It was then, ironically, that I started to see Springsteen as more than just a face on the cover of People magazine. With distance from home, I could hear him. As I immersed myself in his first three albums, I realized I knew the characters in his songs the derelict kids rowing beach towns and the romantic shooting for something better, looking for meaning. I grew up and lived with those characters. I saw myself too. It was a new way to listen to music for me. Bruce, we were on a first-name basis by now, was not just trying to sing to us, but about us. It was like Uncle Bruce putting his hand on my shoulder and saying, kid, it's okay. I've been there. We've all been there. Now put away your copy, close to the edge. Let's get down to business. When I got to Springsteen's fourth album, Darkness on the Edge of Town, I found it very different than its predecessors. It was hard and claustrophobic with stripped-down arrangements that contrasted from the long meandering narratives and grandiose arrangements from the first three records. Gone was the romance and the escapism, the wacky adventures of people like Hazy Davy and Crazy Janie, and the Dylan-esque ramblings of songs like Blinded by the Light. At 28, Springsteen's message was clear. Time to grow up, boys and girls. It's a cruel world, so what are you going to do about it? This was some serious shit I was not up for. There are other problems. I didn't care for its radio-friendly 3 minute and 50 second songs, its downtrodden and depressed characters, and its caveman rock arrangements. Songs like Racing in the Streets, in which the main character glorifies illegal drag strip competitions, typified my indifference towards the album. Ugh, who cares? When I saw Springsteen for the first time on the Ghost of Tom Joe tour in 1995, many of the songs from Darkness were into his performance in a set crafted to tell a larger narrative and story arc rather than playing hit song after hit song. The arrangements were really interesting and complemented Bruce's Steinbeck-inspired tales of the displaced the disenfranchised searchers looking for a better life. I decided to give Darkness a second chance and packed it to take with me study abroad in South Africa the following month. In early 1996, I found myself at the University of Fort Hare, in the Western Cape region of South Africa as part of an exchange program at UMass Amherst. Fort Hare was in a very rural town named Alice that was an hour away from anything I considered a city. Alice was in the heart of what was called the Bantustan during the apartheid years, a segregated homeland where blacks were forced to live separate from whites. Needless to say, I was one of the few white people around. My fellow exchange students and I were stripped of many of our Western conveniences and distractions. At first, it was very jarring and unnerving, and this was before cell phones and the internet were just in its infancy. None of us were dependent on those things like we are now, yet we were still going through cultural withdrawal. For the first time, Fort Hare, a formerly segregated black university, was accepting exchange students from the U.S. and Europe. I was one of 10 white students among thousands of Africans from places as far away as Eritrea. Many South African radicals had attended Fort Hare over the years, including President Nelson Mandela. It was just six years after the end of apartheid. Nelson Mandela had been president for two years, and hope was in the air. It was an amazing time in their history that I was lucky enough to be around for. Can you imagine it? Many of my fellow students were part of a revolutionary struggle to end apartheid. Some were forced into exile, some were forced underground, some were imprisoned and tortured. And they lived to see the day when Mandela walked out of prison after 28 years of detention. It was here of all places that I had a Bruce moment. I was walking across campus and something in the night came on my walkman. Remember those? The line, you're born with nothing and better off that way, brought me back to some heated political debates in my dorm the night before. It had been getting late and we covered a lot of ground. Polygamy, land redistribution, Circumcision rituals, I'm not kidding about that, foreign investment, etc. Talk often came around to me because a lot of the guys held up America as a role model for democracy and race relations, which I tried unsuccessfully to play down. Finally, a guy I had run into with before stood up and said he'd heard enough. He was utterly unimpressed with me, which in a way was refreshing, but also made me feel like a total turd. For instance, He complained that I hadn't learned enough Tosa, the language of the Western Cape, and often refused to converse in English in my presence. His friends called him stubborn and rude. I kind of liked him. He told us he was glad he'd been raised during apartheid, in a segregated township where bare necessities like running water were hard to come by, where the threat of a crackdown from the impressive white minority government loomed every day. The bonds of community and family, he said, were strengthened during those times. In white South African society, with its political, social, and financial power, he sensed isolation and anxiety. Now that I can cross the lines and see how whites live, I don't think they're any happier than we are. Less happy, in fact, he said. He saw the fruits of privilege as antithetical to true happiness, instead, breeding discontent and a longing for more. I could hear Bruce singing as soon as you've got something, they send someone to try to take it away. The optimism that many South Africans expressed at that time after living so many years under Africana rule pulled songs like The Promised Land and Badlands out of FM Anthem territory and into real life. I no longer heard naive optimism or working class stereotypes. I started to see post-apartheid South Africa with multiracial rule and the most inclusive constitution on the planet as the promised land. And like the characters on Darkness who hadn't reconciled their hurt, I got glimpses of wounds still fresh from the apartheid years. At parties at Fort Hare, I'd often get taken under the wing of a former underground fighter, political prisoner, or exile. They wanted to learn about the U.S., and I wanted to learn about them. In exchange, I felt I got the better end of. But as the alcohol flowed, The stories grew less glorious and more tinged with sadness as these guys relived their memories of war, detention, torture, the loss of loved ones, awful and sad tales. I'd never made sacrifices so big or known loss of that kind, and I could only guess how someone learns how to live with that, or if they ever do. I'd walk around campus with heaviness from these conversations and hear these lines repeating in my head. Everybody's got a secret, Sonny, something that they just can't face. Some folks spend their whole lives trying to keep it. They carry it with them, every step that they take, till someday they just cut it loose, cut it loose or let them drag them down, where no one asks any questions or looks too long in your face in the darkness on the edge of town. Now, years later, I still think about my friends from Fort Hare when I listen to darkness. Funny how I had to travel to sub-Saharan Africa to find meaning in an album that's supposed to be a meditation on the ups and downs of living in America. The songs ask really important questions. Are you ready to grow up? Are you going to stay and deal with your life or run away? Can you reconcile where you came from? What you've been through and the baggage that comes with it? Now, as an adult and a father, I have to deal with these questions almost every day. Once I heard those questions being asked in those songs and stopped fixating on the guy souping up his 59 Chevy for a drag race, I stepped into manhood. To me, that distinction separates the boys from the men. I just wrote to my brother in Paris, reminding him of this, asking that he someday explain to his son that the song Racing in the Streets is not about cars, but about how to live your life. Some guys, they just give up living. And start dying little by little piece by piece some guys come home from work and wash up and go racing in the street
1: thanks again to my guest chris scanlon you can read his essay and find out more about his music at chrisscanlon.com surgun is a video podcast you can find it on youtube or your favorite podcast player thanks for listening